what I thought was really nice, fun little fact that I found was that some of the movie theaters provided barf bags for people so that you, you weren't just vomiting on the floor. Fantastic. That's fantastic. I don't think they do that anymore. No. I think no. they just assume you have the fortitude if you're going into see a horror movie that you can <laughs> handle it. From Rosemary's Baby and Reagan McNeil to Jason, Freddie, and Chucky to Samara, Jigsaw, and Pennywise, we can't get enough. If it's blood-curdling, spine-tingling, breath-quickening, or soul-stealing, we're ready to watch it. Welcome to Hilltop Horror Movie Reviews. I'm your host, Ray Richards. With me tonight is my co-host, Helen Stewart. How you doing, Helen? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. Uh, unfortunately, Anne Conley can't be with us tonight. She is in California visiting a friend who just had a baby, so congratulations. Tonight we're going to review the horror classic 1973's The Exorcist, an American supernatural horror film adapted by William Blatty from his 1971 novel of the same name, directed by William Friedkin and starring Ellen Burstyn, Linda Blair, Max von Sydow, and Jason Miller. So, Helen, what was your expectation going into watching this movie? I knew from the historical reviews of the movie that it was going to be quite terrifying, so I expected to be thrilled, and I was. <laughs> have you have you seen it before? Did you see it all the way through? I had seen it before, but I had forgotten a lot of it, so it was good to see it again and get refreshed. I couldn't remember if I'd actually seen it all the way through, and I think I watched it one time, and I'm not sure that I thought it was particularly good, so going in, I was concerned about watching it and thinking oh my gosh this movie is everyone loves this movie and i'm really not gonna like it and i'm gonna have to say i don't like it and get a lot of a lot of grief from people i was pleasantly surprised which we'll which we'll get to but uh, that was my expectation going into the movie i had forgotten how some of the scenes were like how they um were shocking <laughs> i didn't remember quite the language when i watched it the first time so i don't know if i saw it made for tv version of the movie but i was surprised <laughs> watching it the second time yeah i i think the same thing the the language and the sort of the sexual language and sexual violence really in in the movie the one scene uh was kind of striking even in today's movies you don't necessarily see stuff that's that's that visceral displayed on the screen with a 12 year old girl right. in the way that it is in this movie that's some stuff right there. And in 1973, <laughs> it must have been it must have been really shocking. Yeah, one one of the things that uh, that I did learn about the movie was that it is actually the top rated R movie for Warner Brothers all time. Still, oh, I did not know today. That. Yep, it made a lot of money. It did really well. And even though it was rated R, of course, it goes with the scenes that we just mentioned. Um, it was commercially successful. All right, so uh, let's uh, let's roll the trailer then. All right, here we go. Something beyond comprehension is happening to a little girl on this street, in this house. A man has been sent for as a last resort to try and save her.
So that did about absolutely nothing for anybody listening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had not watched the trailer uh, previous to right now and didn't realize that it has almost zero dialogue in it whatsoever. So, um, yeah, uh, before we get into the actual uh, review of the movie, uh, let's talk a little bit about the real story that it was based on. So, Helen, do you want to take us through some of that? Sure. Um, So the real story is based on a months-long exorcism that took place in 1949 of a 14-year-old boy named Roland Doe to keep his um, identity anonymous. Um, It was held by Jesuit priests. There were nine of them that were involved throughout the the month-long exorcism. Um, uh, Parents had complained previously that the beds were shaking, the furniture was moving across the room, and all of this had happened after his beloved aunt had introduced him to a Ouija board. Although there was another mm-hmm. version where the aunt had passed away and he was trying to contact her on the Ouija board. Yeah, I, I had read that um, she had introduced him to the Ouija board and then she had died a couple weeks later. Mm-hmm. And then when the the paranormal activity started and it didn't start with his possession, it started like in the movie with the bed shaking and things kind of going on, that they attributed it initially um, once it wasn't the rats to they thought the ant was trying to speak to them from beyond. Oh, I had not read that part. So yeah, that well, maybe I watched a more sensationalized version of the true story than you <laughs> Sounds did. Sounds more interesting than the thing I read. Um, the um, doctors that they had gone to visit gave him a, comle- a clean bill of health. Um, so there was no um, mental issues or at the time that they had seen that was wrong with him. Um, also, word, the words hello were printed across his chest and thighs. So that kind of was um, something that would scare the daylights out of me if it was my kid with hello suddenly branding on his chest and thigh. Yeah, I, I read that they um, there was actually two groups of priests that ended up doing exorcists on him. That initially, he was uh, the family was um, in the Georgetown area uh, is where they lived. And there was a local priest that... They went to after they went to the doctors and thought he was possessed and attempted to do an exorcist on him and did it for three nights. And he was moved to a, a hospital um, and he was bound uh, like she is in the movie. And he somehow got out of his restraint. He reached underneath the bed, grabbed a bed spring, pulled it out and cut the priest from his wrist to his elbow. And the priest basically was like, OK, I can't do this. <laughs> After that, he didn't think he had the mental fortitude to do it, uh, so they sent him home, and then the boy had, I guess St. Louis appeared on his skin someplace, right, in those kind of welts, and the family took that as a sign. They had family in St. Louis, so they mm-hmm. went to St. Louis to stay with their family, um, and that's where they got the the um, larger group of priests that ended up kind of exercising the the demon, if you will, but that's what I had read. Um, yeah, I believe that the family was Lutheran, so they called in the Lutheran priests in the beginning, right, yeah. and then the Lutherans um, called in the, the Catholics, who I guess are experts at yeah. exercising demons. <laughs> yeah, they said, let's get those guys with the old-time religion. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Roland Doe has never publicly spoken about the case, so we don't actually know his version, but apparently, according to one of the priests involved in the exorcism, he is... Turned out to be a nice young man. Yeah, I heard he's he, not young anymore. I heard he worked at NASA. I, I heard did not he, know I, that. I, I heard he worked at NASA, and he's retired now. I guess he's older now. Yeah, I mean, the reason we know any of this is because that that second group of priests kept a a journal that was extensively detailed, which is why we know about it at all. Um, and I just want to read this. The in in the movie, of course, 
um, spoiler alert, uh, it, it ends with Father Kara sacrificing himself. And no one sacrificed themselves in the real story. But the diaries recorded uh, the very last uh, exorcism that they performed. At the end of it, uh, the boy kind of sat up or whatever, and he said, Satan, Satan, I am Saint Michael, and I command you, Satan, and the other evil spirits to leave the body now. And at that point, he was exercised of the demons, apparently. So they, the priests believe that Saint Michael intervened and uh, and cast out the the demons. Um, if anybody wants to have any more information on the true exorcism, um, it, you can watch the documentary on the Discovery Channel in the Grip of Evil. Yes, and there's also a uh, show on Smithsonian uh, called The Real Story, and season two, episode one, is the Exorcist episode. So you can watch that as well if you need more information. And I think we'll, uh, I think we'll move into the, um, I think we'll move into the review then. Lancaster Marin, a veteran Catholic priest and exorcist, is on an archaeological dig in the ancient city of Hatra in Iraq. There he finds an amulet that resembles the statue of Pazuzu, a demon of ancient origins whose history Marin is familiar. In Georgetown, actress Chris McNeil is living on location with her 12-year-old daughter Reagan. She is starring in a film about a student activism directed by her friend and associate Burke Dennings. After playing with a Ouija board and contacting a supposedly imaginary friend, whom she calls Captain Howdy, Reagan begins acting strangely, including making mysterious noises, stealing, constantly using obscene language, and exhibiting abnormal strength. Chris hosts the party, only for Reagan to come downstairs unannounced, telling one of the guests, who is an astronaut, you're going to die up there, and then urinating on the floor. Later, Reagan's bed begins to shake violently, adding further to her mother's horror. Chris consults a number of physicians, but Dr. Klein and his associates find nothing physiologically wrong with her daughter, despite Reagan undergoing a battery of diagnostic tests. So I don't know how you felt, but the whole scene in Iraq didn't need to be there. It was like 10 minutes of nothing to me. Like they introduced this god or demon or whatever. Um, they don't talk about the, the demon. They don't explain what it is. And you're, I'm thinking he's going to bring this statue that he finds back and that's how the girl gets you know possessed but there's no connection to this demon nor do they say his name in the movie to reagan and i was just kind of like kind of let down by that scene yes i i kind of felt the same way i mean so initially when i watched when my expectation going into this movie i didn't mention it earlier but i felt like i was going to turn this movie on and it was going to look horrible immediately the iraqi scenes I, they looked amazing i like I, I thought they looked beautiful they invoked raiders of the lost ark to me a little bit like they looked very raiders-esque but uh you're right i mean they didn't have any direct reason to be in the movie that we see later on it was almost like they spliced in a different movie it wasn't like i mean they even referenced later in the movie when they get Marin uh to come to the house that you know he had done an exorcism in africa and it's like well, why don't we see the exorcism in africa why are we seeing something completely unrelated right. there's no connective tissue between pazuzu and who and captain howdy who's actually one of the demons that's inhabiting uh reagan so yeah i was very confused by that I, it would be interesting to know whether or not they went back and filmed those scenes to make the movie make more sense or they thought make more sense. I don't know. I couldn't find any information on whether or not they had, they had filmed it. The other option of course, is that the book that it's based on potentially has that information in it. I don't know. Um, I did read 
something about how that scene was filmed at the very end after production had wrapped up, but I don't know exactly why. I I do know that the um, the Americans couldn't get onto the dig site because of it being in Iraq, but that site was actually ancient Nineveh in, in Iraq, and I guess that has some significance to this demon god thing that they were showing, but um, they were actually excavating and not faking it. It was a true excavation that we were watching. Yeah, I mean, it looked real. I mean, there were so many... You could tell, and I think this is probably true of all the scenes in in, in Iraq, all of them were filled with authentic people, it felt like. I mean, mm-hmm. even when he goes down into, I, I don't know what it was, the metalworks or bizarre or whatever it was, and all those men, it's almost like a almost like a tunnel kind of. It was very authentic looking to me, and I'm assuming they just kind of like put Max in there and said, all right, walk down here, we're going to film it. The only thing that it that it does for the movie is it introduces you to Father Marin. It gives you some sense of of his you know stature as as a priest. He squares off with the stat with the statue of Pazuzu you know at the end and kind of in that kind of iconic iconic scene with them on the kind of on the hill of the of the ruins and the dogs kind of making all the animal sounds and the buzzing. I thought the buzzing was cool. The, the sound of the movie was really good too, more than I thought it was going to be coming from the seventies. And I guess it also get, it lets you know that he's his health is compromised, right? That mm-hmm. it affected him and he needed to take the pills. So I, that's about it. Otherwise, it it really was distracting, and I had almost forgot about it by the time he showed back up in the movie. I do like the way that you brought that up about how he's squaring off of the demon, but having not had this discussion, I don't think I would have put two and two together to say that's what he was doing, because I wouldn't have said that that was definitely the demon that Reagan was possessed by. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they didn't even use, like, the same sounds. Like, they didn't bring the buzzing back right. into Reagan's... Uh, you know, possession at all that would make you connect them. They there, there's a point in the movie where uh, the uh, I think his name Kincaid. I don't remember the the, the police officer's name, but uh, he's standing at the bottom of the steps after Dennings dies, and he sees something and he picks it up out of, off the ground, and it's a one of those little animals that she created. And for one instant, I was like, is that a a, a copy of the, the little statue thing that he found in Iraq. Did she make that or did the demon make that and give it to Dennings before she pushed him out of the window or whatever? Um, but no, it was like an elephant or something. I don't, right. I don't, remember, I don't remember what it was exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so none of that connected. So yeah, right right off the bat, I personally was like, looks great, seems great, but has nothing to do with the movie after it shifts to Georgetown. Right. I, I honestly thought I was watching the Marvel movie <laughs> in the beginning. I was like, wait, what did I pick? <laughs> So that, so then it does. It moves to Georgetown, right? And you get um you get Chris uh McNeil, the mother, and she is what is she? She hears the, the rats are the big thing, right? Isn't that the very first thing we see is like the rats? Right. Or not see, but we hear is like in the attic. Um and once again, like, does that is that really like what is that? I don't think we ever find out. Right? It's just noises, right. I guess. Yeah, it felt like in certain scenes that she easily flew off the handle, whether or not it was because she was an actress or she was a single mom. Um, like, it just felt, I felt, I felt like, calm down, lady. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the things I didn't like about the movie was her um, screaming. I, I felt like it was almost cliche. Like, the, the way that she screamed was very old 
Hollywood screaming, I felt like, uh, right. versus sort of a more natural scream. It was one of the only things in the dialogue and in the acting that I thought didn't feel authentic. It felt dramatic to me and didn't feel necessarily authentic. Um, and then, yeah, she has a potty mouth throughout the movie. Like, she's like the one, she's dropping F bombs and all kind of stuff all over this movie. And no one else, except for, except for the demon, I think swears at all in the movie. Right. She does seem to portray as herself as a good mother. She, you see scenes with her, with her daughter fooling around. Um, you can see that they had a good home life. So I guess that sets the scene for when the possession does start to occur that you do know that there's a shift in, in Reagan's personality. So I thought that was a good like tone to set. Like they have this relationship. They're very close. They seem um, like the, a good mother and daughter full like playing games and stuff. And then even with the Ouija board, when that comes out, like they sit down and they play the Ouija board together a little bit. I was surprised at how little time we spent with Reagan before she was possessed or before she started to really exhibit possessed signals of possession i guess i would say or signs of possession really up only until the party do we see her at all and only then in i would say very few scenes in i believe if i'm not incorrect almost all of those scenes are seen through the mother's point of view like it's the mother coming in her her daughter being there like do we see reagan by herself reagan by herself at all i don't think so i think you're right that it's always her coming into the picture. Yeah, yeah. So it's really the mother we're following around. Like we we follow her to her um her acting job, right? Where she the student activist, which I thought was interesting because it's it's a um it's like a Vietnam protest. It's always cool for me to see like movies being shot inside of movies because I'm always wondering like are they just reusing like the the camera? They're like, all right, just guy, you just we're gonna shoot that camera that's already gonna be shooting us later, and we'll just reuse it, and you know, it's all, <laughs> it's all in there. Like, it's very easy because you already have all the production stuff there. You can just kind of point it and shoot, kind of backwards. Um, and then she walks home, and it's Halloween, I think, because the kids are in costumes in the one part. So I guess it's also Reagan's birthday around then, I think. Because you remember the birthday subplot? It's like she's she's like, well, I think we're gonna go and we'll go and we'll go oh. around and see the sights. Right. That's where and you know that she's the single parent because the dad doesn't call on her birthday and yeah. she gets upset. I think that's. I want to say that's the first time she starts dropping f bombs mm-hmm. in the movie. Is like is when she's on the phone trying to get to the father in Rome or wherever he is, Paris. I don't remember. And she's yelling at the whoever the woman I think it's is. The operator, yeah. Yeah, the operator on on the phone. I wonder if they're trying to say that Reagan and her sort of separation from her father is the window in which this demon sort of inserts itself. I might be reading too much into it, but, you know, that was the one. Actually, I'll say that I'll say that was the one scene, I think, that I can remember that was shot from her point of view because she's listening from the door, her doorway, and you see her mother off speaking in the phone. So the camera, the audience is with Reagan listening. And she kind of has that look, oh, you know, she's not going to get to speak to her father. And I wonder if that's like, I don't know if that's the moment. I don't know if that's, like, I don't know if there's possession stuff that is before that. I think they're obviously the rats. So the right. the demon's present in there. But I wonder if that's the the gateway that he gets into, into, the, uh, into Reagan, into the possession. Through. I can't I don't know if you recall, but she briefly Reagan briefly mentions to her mother, I can't sleep, my bed's she been shaking. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if that was before or after 
this scene? I don't know. I feel like it was before. Yeah, I don't think ultimately we see the precipitating event or when we don't see her use the Ouija board. Really, she's just like, oh, I've been using the Ouija board for a while and Captain Howdy's been talking to me. And who knows how long that's been going on. We don't know. And then and then we move to the uh, the party scene where she goes full full initial possession where she comes downstairs and tells the astronaut he's going to die, which they never pay off either. In a, in, a, in a more modern movie, they would have paid that off. Like, there would have been a scene of the mother watching TV later on where they said, oh, Apollo 13 blew up or whatever, and the astronaut died or whatever it was. Right. You know what I mean? But, yeah, and then, then she urinates on the floor, and then they take her upstairs. And I think that's the last – I want to say the last time when she's like, mother, what's wrong with me? I, I feel like that's the last time you really hear from the actual girl. Right. Um, Because then you get into the battery of tests and, uh, and all that and the – I don't know was the is it an angiogram i don't know exactly what they're what tests they're doing to her but the uh where they stick the needle in her neck and the blood starts spurting out i didn't understand i mean is that how it happens <laughs> you know like you're sitting there sticking a needle that's got like open end and you don't even have the tubing ready to plug it up like I, you just don't have blood spurting everywhere maybe maybe back then he did because we didn't have that many communicable communicable diseases, but that that was gross. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm not a medical expert. I can't say whether that looked right or looked barbaric from our age back to the 70s. Um, I feel like it was barbaric. Like I feel like the spurting blood something you don't necessarily see these days. Uh, but I I don't know. Um, I will say that uh, the the author William Blatty uh, is on record saying that the people who you know, had to leave the theater, people who were getting sick and were fainting in the theaters. He does not attribute that to the supernatural aspects of the movie, but actually to the medical uh, scenes. Uh, this one in particular, where people were just sort of viscerally disturbed by it. And I got to be honest with you, of all the scenes in the movie, this one made me the most queasy. Um, what I thought was really nice, fun little fact that I found was that some of the movie theaters provided barf bags for people so that... <laughs> You were just vomiting on the floor. Fantastic. That's fantastic. I don't think they do that anymore. No, I think no. they just assume you have the fortitude if you're going into see a horror movie <laughs> that you can handle it. So it actually segues then into Father Karras. I felt, because he comes off the subway, right? It's a subway. And he runs into the homeless man. Is that where yeah, he runs I, into the homeless man? I, I don't know if I think he's get is he getting on or getting off? I can't remember, but it's in the subway. Right. It's in the subway. And the homeless man is like, "Hey, can you spare an old altar boy some change or something?" And and he just like flat out ignores him. And I felt like with that being the first scene of meeting this guy, I'm like, "Really? You're a priest. You're supposed to be helping people, and you just walk past that man on the subway." And and then you go and you see his mother's living conditions. I'm like, okay, well, maybe he's trying to save a few bucks. But it just felt like you could have directed him to a shelter or... <laughs> but I, I'd be honest with you. I, I appreciated the fact that the Catholic priests in this movie were not really made to look all that holy. They look like people who are just trying to do their job, right? And I mean, Kara specifically is... a psychiatrist right and a priest and so he's kind of straddles a line and he has like a uh, conflict of faith which is kind of the point of his his character i guess but even the other priests are not all that seem to be all that cooked up uh to be perfect 
which I appreciated. They all smoke. Of course, everyone in this movie smokes. It seems like it's, it's the seventies, I guess. <laughs> um, but like they're smoking, and I don't know if they swear or not. But like the priests are at a bar hanging out, and you know they seem like cool people. Except they ignore, ignore homeless people. <laughs> I, I guess. Well, maybe he knew he was evil. I mean, he looked kind of evil. Yeah, I mean, he did look almost possessed. When when I saw him and he says that line, I'm like, this the homeless guy looked creepy, and I I probably would have walked past the homeless guy too, but. I just I just thought he looked a little possessed. Yeah, so I was gonna I was gonna bring this up later, but you saying that the that the old the homeless man looked possessed made me think. So there's this purpose of the demon, which I'm not entirely sure uh, I understand, but I I got the impression from a couple scenes in the movie that one of its purposes was to get Father Karras, right? Was to get into the get into a priest corrupt his soul or take his soul or whatever um there's a scene later on when that when reagan and and Karis meet and he's talking to the demon and he says about the demon says something like you know it it'll get us make us closer or get us closer and i kind of felt like that and and if the homeless man is actually sort of some representation of a demon or a possessed man that it's all sort of like trying to work Karis into this position so that when they do meet and he does um, confront the demon, that the demon has him in a weakened state. Um, the same thing with Marin in some respects because it, if it is Pazuzu, right, that that Marin sort of meets or confronts or whatever, becomes aware of or they become aware of each other in Iraq, then, you know, it's it's sort of like – is it manipulating events to bring him there in some way so that they can take care of him too because it knows he's weak? I don't know. I might be reading way more into this movie than than what's actually there, the Marin thing specifically. I think there's enough evidence for the Karis thing um, to some extent to, to make sense. Um, and the girl potentially isn't even the, the, the real reason that the demon's there. It's just a vessel for him to try to manipulate events to get what he really wants. One night when Chris is out, Burke Dennings is babysitting a heavily sedated Reagan only for Chris to come home to hear that he has died falling out the window. Although this is assumed to have been an accident, given Burke's history of heavy drinking, his death is investigated by Lieutenant William Kinderman, who interviews Chris as well as priest and psychiatrist Father Damien Karras, who has recently been emotionally shaken after the death of his frail mother. So this introduces the uh, police officer who has a scene with with Father Karras where he threatens slash talks to him about a, a scene in the church uh, where I think it was a statue of Mary was desecrated, right? And then also uh, Dennings, who he thinks was, was pushed out of the window or killed because of the way his head's like twisted around, I guess. What do you think about the about the church desecration? So... I that was shocking to sit there and and see what should be a holy place then be desecrated with three horns through Mary's chest and her personal areas. <laughs> <laughs> so um and then blood seemed to be dripping from it. Um the look on the priest's face was complete shock and I think my mouth might have dropped a little bit. Um I, I it was definitely a shocking scene. I think that was the first shocking scene for me aside from the hospital like the first evil kind of shocking scene where you're you're like i see where this movie is starting to head sure yeah i i kind of i didn't know how to feel about that 
part. And then at the end of the movie, just like with Iraq, I was wondering why was that scene in the movie? Because they have this weird potential subplot where the where the um po- the police officer comes to Karis and says, "I think it's a rogue priest, basically, who desecrated the church and killed Dennings." And I mean, out of the blue, because I don't know why you would connect those two things together, really. But you know, he brings those together and is you know interrogating uh, Damien to try to give up information because he's a psychiatrist and the priests come and talk to him and divulge their inner secrets to him, um, as well as sort of confession, obviously. And even like threatens to have him deported, which I thought was interesting, <laughs> right. right? Semi threatens to have him deported. So I didn't, you know, that didn't go anywhere. It it really just kind of like that. It sat in that scene, and then you don't find out who actually desecrated uh, the statue. Was it a demon? Was it Pazuzu? You know, does he have that much free reign to kind of go and do whatever he wants? Yeah, I don't know. I kind of thought that it was the demon saying, "Hey." I can come wherever I want to go and do whatever I want to do. So here I am in your holy place where I shouldn't be allowed to be messing with your stuff. So watch out here. I'm coming. (laughs) Yeah. Or if I'm going to go back to my pet theory, which is that the demon was after the priest the whole time. He's getting the priest involved, right? Like if I desecrate the church, you know, the cop goes, gets the cops involved. Denning dies. All of a sudden, the cop's talking to the priests. He's talking to Damien. He's now, that's, you know, it's like one one connection away from, um, you know, the family and getting the priest in the door so that so that the demon can, can try to take his soul. So maybe that fits that way, I guess, if you believe the demon did it. Um, it just felt like on its face that it, initially to me that it sort of went nowhere. Kind of like Iraq was kind of like in there for for very minimal reason. What about, do you recall the hospital scene, I think it was when the blood was spurting, where she wakes up suddenly, I I believe, and starts grabbing the psychiatrist's genitals? That's the, um, yeah, the psychiatrist, the hypnotist, right? This movie, by the way, has everything in it. It does. It's like, hard to remember when things happened when. Like, like, like in every trope in every possession movie started in this movie. Like the hypnotist, the Catholic priests, the the MRIs, the CAT scans, the every, everything seems to be in this movie in some form or fashion. Um, and yeah, so they have the psychiatrist, and he hypnotizes her, and that's when she first says, "There's somebody else in the body," right? Right. And that's when she, yeah, she grabs the guy and um, and he squeals. <laughs> he goes down pretty hard. The other scene associated right around the psychiatrist scene, I believe, is when the doctors make the house call. The two doctors make the house call, which is when the possession actually, in my opinion, actually manifests itself. Because that's when the doctors come in the room and um, – uh, and she's yelling, fuck me, fuck me, you know, and the one doctor goes to get her and she backhands him and cracks him <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he flies across the room. Um, and, the, and the mother scream, of course, screaming her, her, her crazy Hollywood scream, in my opinion. Uh, and and that's when she like falls back or whatever, she doesn't fall back, but her eyes go white mm-hmm. and she has that throat bulge thing. And that was that was fantastically creepy to me. Like I was like, I don't know how they did that effect, but it looked pretty good to me and was was creepy. 
So that's because that's when she says, you know, the sow is mine or something. I think the demon says that or whatever. That's the first like proclamation of ownership of the girl. And I think the next scene or, or thereabouts is when the group of the group of doctors is kind of sitting around the table and he's like, yeah, we, we gave it our best shot. We got nothing. Go go get yourself a witch doctor. Right. Basically. Right. The doctors, thinking that Reagan's aberrations are mostly psychiatric in origin, recommend an exorcism is performed. Chris arranges a meeting with Karis. After recording Reagan speaking backwards and witnessing the apparent effect of the scarification of her flesh with the words help me on her stomach, Karis is convinced that Reagan is possessed. Believing her soul is in danger, he decides to perform an exorcism. Exorcism, excuse me. The experienced Marin is selected to perform the actual exorcism with Karis present to assist. So when when Karis was originally introduced to this movie in the movie, um, he they they mentioned something like how he has this psychiatric knowledge, but I I felt at that point that he had like witnessed an exorcism, but he never had. So I don't know why they were so I don't like loosey goosey with how they were explaining it in the beginning, and then here it's like he wants to do the exorcism, which I was surprised at because he's losing his faith that you shouldn't be a part of something like that if you are of questionable faith because you could get possessed by the demon if it leaves the other person's body, theoretically. Theoretically. <laughs> yeah, no. I, yeah, I thought the same way about him kind of taking uh, taking an active role in the exorcism, both from, like you said, his his crisis of faith although i could maybe understand him saying you know maybe this is the challenge god's given me to kind of restore my faith or to show my faith in some way but also in the whole sort of recording the voices and the fake holy water and the church usually in in subsequent horror movies about possession that involve the catholic church the catholic church tightens up they're like we're not doing an exorcism unless you like absolutely prove what's going on and in this movie, it's kind of like, eh, you sprinkled her with fake holy water. She was speaking English, English backwards. Deal. Exorcism. <laughs> no problem. We're going to go with it. Uh, and, and I felt like it was a little too easy to get the exorcism. Right. But it was the 70s. Maybe maybe that's what, the, what they did back then. I don't know. They talked about it being difficult, that they would have to do these, the proving, and yeah. then it would go up to a higher person. But it seemed like they just had one little easy conversation, and then here we go. Let's let's do it. And here here's all the priests available. They're right in your vicinity. Lucky you. Yes, I, I felt like maybe there were more scenes that they had shot, and they just decided they didn't need all of that, all those scenes of the different proofs, and they just kind of condensed it down to the to the bare minimum and kind of went with it. I mean, the movie was two hours long, and that's two hours in 1973, which. Which is which is a, lo- a long movie, uh, and then and then Marin's at uh, Woodstock, which is not the Woodstock uh, where in 1969 Woodstock it was actually saw a Jesuit um, uh, Jesuit campus or something like that where where he was staying that actually closed down. I read a year after the movie um, came out, uh, so it was kind of interesting. Um, a fact that I had read was that Father Dyer was actually a priest, so he was here to not only consult but he acted as well. Yeah, that's correct. I found that that was very interesting to me, and I and I'm wondering. I'm not sure. I'm sure he didn't give the entire last rites during that scene. But are you allowed to give last rites to somebody who's not actually dying? Like as a <laughs> priest, are you allowed to like act out the, the last rites? I'm not sure. I'm wondering if the words were manipulated a little bit. <laughs> yeah, he he added a couple extra words, so it wasn't the actual um, the actual ritual. 
So I think that the most shocking scene of this movie was with the crucifix that she inserts into herself over and over again with kind of ferocity. Sure. <laughs> and then the mother comes in and then she says, lick me. Yeah. And then forces her head down there and clearly something's wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At that, at that point, I'm moving beyond the doctors. I think I think something's uh, really off. Yeah. I mean, that was a shocking scene. And I can only imagine how shocking it was in 1973. It must have been a hundred times more shocking than it is today with sort of the way that talking about sex and talking about uh, masturbation and all of that is much more out in the open. It's like you get this image of this really cute young girl who's sweet and innocent and just was fooling around with the Ouija board, taking a sharp-edged crucifix to herself. It was definitely, I don't, I don't know if that will ever not be shocking. One thing that I always wondered with putting young actors into these kinds of movies, like, how do you explain this to them? Because how does this not scar her? <laughs> yeah, I, I read that it, sometimes they used a, a, a double or have her say a word that's not necessarily right. the word and it just look this similar kind of mouth movements. And then they dub in the word because she doesn't do the voice of um, of the demon. It's another woman who does the voice of the demon. Right. Um, I had read that the woman who does the voiceover was an alcoholic, but in order to get, to achieve the voice, she had to drink a ton of alcohol. She was chain smoking. She had her priest on site just to help guide her through this so that when she got out of the movie, she wouldn't end up being an alcoholic. I don't know if I would be that dedicated to a job. And then the director didn't want to put her name in the, in the movie mm -hmm. just so that people would be super creeped out thinking that the possession was actually a real, almost a real type event. So one interesting thing about this movie is it is one hour and 15 minutes into this movie before um, Damien and the mother even meet. And then it's one hour and 34 minutes into the movie, which is essentially 20 minutes before the movie ends, before Marin even arrives. Like the iconic scene of him getting out of the cab um, and, and the standing outside the apartment in the light, you know, that's basically 20 minutes before the movie's over. So all the rest of this movie is really the mother and the mother's life and the sort of leading up to the possession in that initial possession period, which is <laughs> which I didn't remember hardly any of. Right. It wasn't what made the movie the movie. Yeah, absolutely. I will say, though, that that scene of Marin and the music and him getting out of the cab. It's all one continuous shot, right? So I was watching to paying, to paying attention. And the cab comes up and stops. And he gets out. And the cab moves. And he kind of like takes a couple steps. And I'm sure there's markers on the ground telling him where to stand. But he takes a couple steps. And he kind of stands there and looks up. And it is really an, an iconic uh, picture. It was um, apparently based off of the Empire of Light by the artist Magritte. Which I did not look up to see if it actually compared. But... It was just kind of interesting that they made that kind of mimic in the famous painting. That's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, obviously a lot of thought went into the movie beyond beyond just, you know, let's possess a girl, slap some makeup on her, and right. let's, uh, let's, let's get a rated R movie out the door. Um, you know, you saying that made me think of the – in the trailer, which nobody could see in the podcast, but we watched – uh, you see a lot of flashes of the pale face, a pale faced person, which you also see in the movie, superimposed over Reagan's face a couple times, and 
the I guess kind of represents the demon in a more pure form. Those were actually uh, test shots, uh, makeup shots that they discarded in, uh, um, and instead used what Reagan looked like in the movie, which kind of the cracked skin and that sort of thing. But those were original test shots of the of uh, the makeup tests. So they used them, superimposed them, and I guess they used them in the trailer an awful lot because that's pretty like fifty percent of what you see in that trailer. The trailer was creepy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the way they shot it. You just couldn't see it. Yeah, it, it actually kind of was, I don't say it was creepier than the movie, but in some way it had more atmosphere than the movie did. Both priests witness Reagan perform a series of bizarre, vulgar acts and confine her to her bedroom. They attempt to exercise the demon, but a stubborn Pazuzu toys with them, especially Karis. Karis shows weakness and is dismissed by Marin, who attempts the exorcism alone. Karis enters the room and discovers Marin has died of a heart attack. After failing to revive Marin, the enraged Karis confronts the mocking, laughing spirit of Pazuzu, tackling the demon to the ground. At Karis's furious demand, Pazuzu then possesses Karis, leaving Reagan's body. In a moment of self-sacrifice, the priest throws himself out of a window before allowing Pazuzu to compel him to harm Reagan and is himself mortally injured. Father Dyer, an old friend of Karis, happens to be on the scene and administers the last rites to his friend. A few days later, Reagan, who is now back to her normal self, prepares to leave for Los Angeles with her mother. Although Reagan has no apparent recollection of her possession, she gives Father Dyer a kiss on the cheek. Kinderman, who narrowly misses their departure, befriends Father Dyer as he investigates Karis's death. So I guess leading back to where we thought the homeless man might have been possessed, I believe it was around the time of this scene where she's in her bedroom with the two priests she repeats what the homeless man had said will you help an old older boy father so i i thought that was kind of an interesting kind of linking up of that scene with the scene so what did you think of the exorcism itself marin and and karis i i think that it was kind of i i kind of wish there was more of that to the story than the mother's social scenes yeah especially yeah. reading what the actual child went through with months of an exorcism and then we get what you said 20 minutes um so i feel like i could have seen more of what was actually going on and and maybe the priest on site was like no i'm not going to tell you and we'll just you know you have to make it up but i would have liked to have seen more of like what the ritual was besides them just doing some incantations from the bible yeah i i think that they could have potentially spent more time on the exorcism itself like starting the exorcism and having it take days or weeks or whatever and showing uh reagan sort of in more and more peril physically right um then sort of condensing all in, all into the last 20 minutes of the movie with very little marin and very little you know father Karras doing anything of 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 import in the movie right um in fact the uh it, there's a tv series or there was a tv series the exorcist which had two seasons and was a direct continuation of of this uh, of this movie, the first season anyway, um, picked up with an adult Reagan and her family, and actually brought the actress back that played Chris. Uh, and there's a, a young priest and an old priest. They kind of re resurrect the sort of Marin and, and Father Karras dynamic to some extent, although the priest, the older priest, is not that much older. But um, and they and their exorcisms in the show are, I think, much more. Um, accurate to what it seems like the true story here is where they're just constantly sort of going back over the ritual and it's not working and the person's getting sicker and sicker and of course it's a tv show so they have 
episodes to fill, so they, it, it's an incentive for them to kind of draw it out more. But it, it certainly gives a little more flavor to to the exorcism exorcism ritual itself than this movie does in particular. Right. You hear that it's an intense battle, and it didn't seem that it was all that. It felt more intense on the priests than it did on Reagan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I, I guess you could make the argument that she was already pretty far gone by the time they got to her because you know father Karras does like go into the room and is you know I, I what's he doing taking her pulse or doing something and you know Marin says what is it and he says it gets, it's her heart so that's like them saying oh my gosh she's physically failing which is the first time you've ever really they ever really talk about her physical health right. uh, during the possession although I mean, as a parent, if my kid looked like that, I'd be freaking out, like ripped yeah. skin and whatever. Like, I would just be like, what is going on? The throwing up of the pea soup. Phenomenally disgusting. So the scene with the pea soup um, where it shoots at him and hits him in the face actually wasn't meant to hit him in the face. It was meant to hit him in the chest. And the reaction in the scene is the his real reaction to being hit in the face and kind of wiping it off and apparently the actor was very upset that uh he got hit he got hit like in the mouth with this pea soup stuff oh really so yeah i had read that they had a double for this because she reagan the actress could not stand vegetables so they had her mimicking throwing up and then overlaid it with the person actually throwing up the pea soup Interesting. I read that the rig that they constructed to do the pea soup shooting was fiberglass to some extent. And like it strapped into the person's mouth somehow. And they couldn't really like swallow very well um, when they had it on. So it sounds like a pretty torturous device to have in. But it looked really real. Like it did. The, the scene where. Um, where Father Marin has the stole, the purple stole, and he's like has it against her, and her head's kind of turned, and it's just kind of flowing out of her mouth. Mm-hmm. Like that looked pretty real to me. Like it wasn't like a tube on the side of her face. It it was like coming out of her mouth, and I was impressed by the. Yeah, it it seemed like they took a really long and careful time trying to figure out how to make these effects look legitimate, and then it comes across in today's world as being realistic i was expecting some more cheesiness and i didn't see that at all i agree completely the one scene where they come in i don't know if it's a scene where they initially walk in or whatever i don't think it is where she's sitting on the bed i feel like she's sitting up but she's like looking at them and she almost has like a doll it almost looks like a doll like a fake person um and then as they they come forward like you can see her expressions on her face and stuff and i thought that was pretty one of the few times I thought it was kind of scary, um, you know. I mean, it's dated. You know what I mean? It's just, it has that. It has a. It has a dated feel to it from the way that it's shot. You know what I mean? The, to to elicit the scares. I mean, if you go back to something like The Ring um, or Annabelle, like the way that the cinematography works, the way that the music sets you up, like all of that stuff cues you up to be scared. And The Exorcist, it it just doesn't have that level that we've gotten to now i don't think right but still disturbing yeah just just not scary right i don't know if i was really necessarily scared throughout the film more so shocked yeah so Marin goes in he he has to take his his medicine and he comes back out and then he kicks damien out of the out of the um out of the room and you know that's all going to go bad when it's just one priest in there in fact i read that uh 
there in in the exorcism ritual there's a requirement to have at least four people i believe in the room mm-hmm. one's a doctor one's a member of the family and then two priests so they really were kind of cheating this a little bit by having just the two priests in there um and then obviously cheating it just to have Marin in there um and i kind of felt like it was stupid on his part like right you know you're pretty much on the edge right and they had said that in the previous one um, the previous exorcism that he did, that he almost died. So I'm not sure if that's what was making him take those pills, but y- you know, you almost lost your life once. Why are you Why are you taking that risk again? And and you're not taking a risk for just you. You're taking a risk for her as well. Yeah, absolutely. And to be honest with you, if you're going to do that, why don't you stage it so the demon gets into you and then you have a heart attack? Right. Done. <laughs> Everything's taken easy, care easy. of. Instead, you died before it even happened. But I will say that it was it was relatively. Um, Relatively shocking, again, when Damien comes back into the room and he's just got his head down on the bed. Right. Dead. And you don't even see it. You don't see any of it. And one of the one of the few times I felt like the demon was scary, I guess, was when Damien then walks around the bed. And you see the, the, um, the demon is sitting like against one of the bedposts facing away from the camera when he walk in, when he walks in the room and then he walks around and then you see you know the the girl and she's kind of has her it's almost like lounging she kind of has her hands folded over top of each other and she's kind of looking and it, i don't know what about that way that she was positioned but it was scary to me <laughs> i was like is she gonna like jump and bite his throat or what what's she gonna do you know because now she's loose and it's kind of like, what, what's she gonna do um yeah, and then Damien, like, you know, he flips Marin over and he's, like, pounding on his chest or whatever. Like, I don't know. Is that... That looked like the worst CPR yeah, that, that you could ever give to anybody. I would have just said, no, thank you. Just let me go. <laughs> yeah, I think that was more like just rage hits. I right. don't think he really thought he was doing anything in reality. <laughs> and then my the funniest scene in the movie, in my opinion, where he grabs the girl and, like, throws her on the ground and starts punching her, wailing on her. And I'm like, you're really going to hit the 12-year-old kid? <laughs> like, come on. Like, you're not doing anything to the demon. You're just hurting the girl. And the fact, at the end, when she comes out and she's all fixed and she has, like, the bruises on her face, that's because the priest punched her. <laughs> yeah. It's probably not he because... He didn't give money to the homeless. He's punching a 12-year-old girl in the head. Yeah. What else do you expect? Yeah, I mean, he was primed for this possession at the end. <laughs> um, yeah, and then he ge- then he gives himself up, right? He right. says, you know, come into me, come into me. And um, she rips the uh, the the necklace, his necklace, off. Right, and this is one thing that I was unsure of in the movie, which the at the very beginning in Iraq, he finds a necklace. Isn't the same necklace, or it has the same type of necklace? And they say this doesn't belong here. And then later on, they have you know Father Karras has that necklace, I believe, on or a similar necklace like it, and the demon rips it off, and then it's given to um father dyer at the end i believe um so the metal wow words the metal is actually a saint joseph medal okay saint which, joseph which is commonly called the saint christopher medal which many people probably have heard of this where it's yeah, like saint a christopher protector. yep the protector yeah so it's not supposed to be the same that's a common um misconception misconception thank you that no they problem. are one and the same and they are not um the question that should be asked is and this is what I thought. Why is such a more recent metal in this Nineveh archaeological dig site? 
Like that shouldn't be there at that time with that statue, but it's there. So it almost seems like somebody had found it and placed the metal with it so that it wouldn't possess somebody. I would never have put this together, but when he finds the metal, he speaks in both Arabic and English, and he says, this is strange. However, if you translate it to Arabic, it's he's actually saying, what is this doing here? Interesting. And you're saying that the metal they found in Iraq is not the same metal as... Not the exact same. Not the exact same metal, but right. it's the same type of metal. Yes. It's, but they're both St. Christopher. Right. What does it mean? I guess the guy, the director just wanted to have it resonate that you could protect yourself, but then once you lose that protection, you're susceptible to demonic possession. So are we supposed to understand potentially that the demon himself was being kept at bay in that idol that was being sort of protected, had the protection of that metal, and then when they uncovered it in Iraq, they actually released him? Yeah, I think removing the metal from that statue, whatever the vicinity of the statue, I think caused it to release the demon. That that was the impression that I got. Because as wow. soon as I saw the metal, I was like, huh, that looks like... Like something that would protect it. Like it didn't belong in that time period. And yeah. Then, I mean, I forgot about it because it was such an irrelevant. I was like, what's, what's the scene doing here? Yeah, I didn't put that. I, I wondered at the time when they said it doesn't belong here. And I saw that it was a medal. It didn't look like the St. Christopher medals that I'm used to. Um, but I was like, okay, it's an older medal, whatever. And then I didn't really put it together with, with Father Karras's medal until it got ripped off at the end. You right. know what I mean? But that's very interesting. So... I want to go back now and say maybe the first 10 minutes actually meant something if that was the release of the demon that then could go into the world and possess the girl. All right. Well, I learned something new every day. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, Father Karras gets possessed. And then what I thought was the the worst shot in the movie to me was the hands Father Karras is like just his hands going towards the girl. Like I felt <laughs> yes. like that was very 60s Hitchcock. We didn't need to kind of do that. It was beneath the more subtle uh, cinematography of the rest of the movie. Um, and it came right at a point when that's the climax of the movie. So it kind of it personally took me kind of out of it. But yeah, then he throws himself out the window and tumbles down the stairs. And uh, the uh, the exterior, the actual exterior of the um, of the house, it does not extend all the way to the stairs in real life. If you go see the real stairs that exist in Georgetown, um, you will see that the building doesn't actually jut close enough so that you could jump out the window and fall down the stairs. So the crew built a exterior, an extended exterior with the window, so that they could film it and make it look like you could fall and break your neck and tumble down. A million stairs and apparently the the stunt guy that that did it i think he got hurt doing it but they put rubber padding down on the stairs so that he could just he actually tumbled down those stairs which is pretty that's crazy yeah which that's is a, quite a staircase which is a pretty yeah and i mean it's pretty steep looking i mean if you went down that thing i think you'd be cruising pretty fast right uh if you didn't control yourself and i'm not even really sure i don't know how much padding you'd have to put on those things for me to feel safe enough that I wouldn't go careening off on of one direction or the other and get out of control and hit the guard, the rail or whatever and and really hurt myself. But um, but yeah, I thought the uh, the scene where he so he falls down the stairs and he's kind of laying there in his pool of blood, which I kind of thought he was dead. I forgot this the scene existed and everybody starts gathering around. Which wh where is everybody just happens to be? Right, they're just cruising along the sidewalks waiting yeah. for something to happen. 
Father Dyer just like shows up out mm-hmm. of nowhere, like, hey guys, and Damien's dying. And uh I read that the director, they had done a number of takes and he didn't like Father Dyer's um acting, basically. And he said, Do you trust me? And and the father said, Yes, and he smacked him in the face and he said, Action. And he filmed then the scene that you see in the movie of him shake he his hands shaking kind of when he's performing the ritual and that's because he just got smacked smacked full on in the face yeah i heard he was quite a brutal director like in order to scare people he'd shoot guns behind people without telling them and it's just the, the things that they made the actors and actresses go through was something else the other thing they did during the exorcism scenes well even even beyond the exorcism scenes is her bedroom was refrigerated to get the breath to get the, the coldness of the breath. He wanted to be able to see that. And of course, they didn't have CGI then, so they weren't going to add it in later. So they just chilled that entire room down. So everybody's bundled up except for, of course, Reagan's in like a nightgown and the mother's in, you know, normal clothes and the priests are in their kind of normal attire. But it's like 30 degrees in that in that room. In fact, I read that it snowed one day in the room because it got so cold and there was so so much humidity in the room that they came in and there was like a blanket of snow, a little, you know, blanket of snow over over the bed in the in the floor. So Yeah, I heard there was a couple people complaining about how could you let a twelve year old girl in a little nightgown sit in this refrigerated room. But I guess back then we didn't have the uh women's rights type thing all the <laughs> <Yeah>. way settled <laughs> well, yet. Well human rights, the whole thing. <laughs> Basically it sounds like you could do whatever you wanted to if you were a director back in the seventies and, and before. Quickly back to the last right scene. I thought it was a very powerful scene. I, I don't know that I've that I've ever watched the last rites being conducted. And and I've seen it in a couple different movies, but being conducted in a way where, you know, you don't actually see Father Karras. Like he, you know, you just kind of see the top of his head or whatever. And he's holding the priest's hand, uh, the other priest's hand. And he's you know, he's reciting the the ritual and he's asking him questions. And you just see him like flex his, his, hand, his hands, you know what I mean? And kind of grab him to, to, to signify yes. And I, I don't know. I, I thought that was – I thought it was a powerful scene to me. Maybe – Maybe the most emotionally powerful scene to me. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's because the guy was dying or what, but but it stuck with me. You kind of felt bad for the guy. Here he is questioning his faith. Faith. He loses his mother, and then he ends up having to throw himself out a window. And it, it just like he didn't even, he didn't really seem seem to have much of a chance. <laughs> no, I know, and I guess it was a win for the good guys. So, do, do you think so? I got really confused with the kiss that she gives Father Dyer at the end. Because she claims to not remember anything. But then she goes ahead and gives him this creepy kiss. And I, I thought it was creepy. I thought it was just... She I, runs up to him. It's not like a quick peck. It was like a little bit more prolonged than that. And I'm like, is he? Is, is she still slightly possessed? Is, is the demon now just playing nice until it can get its way again? I haven't seen any sequels, so I don't know, but... If I put my 1970s hat on and I watch that movie, I see it as her kind of like saying, even though I don't remember, there's something inside of me that knows that the Catholic priest saved me, right? And he's representative of the Catholic priests that that fought for her and saved her soul, right? Uh, If I put the modern day hat on, I feel like it's like the demon being, (laughs) you know, playing tricky and like, haha, look, I kissed the priest and, you know, whatever. But I tend to believe it's the former, 
You're I don't probably know. right. Um, so I wasn't alive back in the seventies, but I so I don't know if this is the case. But how many sequels did they actually do? Would he have thought ahead to plan like let's do a sequel? Whereas now it's like let's make as much much money as possible on any sort of movie enterprise. And so you're thinking, how do I get a sequel out of this movie? I don't believe so. I I kind of think that they were making this movie as a singular movie. Right. Um, luckily, you can kind of take that both ways. You could use it even if you didn't originally think it was, you know, mm-hmm. a continued possession. Yeah, I think that he was so enthralled with the story of the exorcist that exorcism that occurred back in 1949 that he probably did just intend to make this one movie since he was captivated by the story. So now that we've reviewed the movie, it's time to rate it. Only the best movies make it to the top of the hill, and to be the best, they have to perform in three categories. One, technical composition, which represents how well the movie's made, including the script, directing, cinematography, acting, and effects. Impact, which represents how well the movie accomplished its emotional intent. Was it scary? Was it funny? Did it make you question your reality or question mankind? And enjoyment, which is pretty simple. Uh, How much did you enjoy watching the movie? Would you watch it again? Do you never want to see it again? So we're going to mix it up a little bit this time. Instead of each of us going through and kind of going through all three, let's just take uh, each one of these categories and talk about them over overall for the movie. So technical composition, what did you think about how the movie was made? I thought that the movie was very applicable towards today's standards. Um, I, however, I didn't, I didn't think it tied a lot of what I thought was important in like the Iraq scene I thought was kind of useless until we discussed further. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have made that connection without a discussion like this. Um, I thought that there was so much built into her personal life that we could have done without, that there could have been more um, emphasis on the actual exorcism itself. So I was, as much as I enjoyed the possession part, I, I felt like it, the movie could have had a little bit more. I would agree with that uh, to the extent that I felt going in that it was going to be dated, but in the end, it was beautifully shot. Um, The exterior scenes in the mid-Atlantic autumn with the characters, they're constantly sort of on the move against the backdrop of Georgetown uh, with like the 1970s feel to it, like the Halloween, the kids in in their costumes. I I enjoyed that. So the, the, the the slow pacing I liked, it kind of got us into it. But I do think it maybe carried on slightly too far uh, where it ate into what could have been a more extended exorcism scenes with her deterioration, the priest's deterioration, instead of having everybody show up already tired, which right. is kind of what kind of what ended up happening. I also thought that if we talked about this a little bit. The effects largely held up, mostly because they were fairly basic, shaking beds, you know, noises in the attic, that sort of thing. And then the, basically the makeup, you know, the pea suit being sort of the big thing. And also, the, I guess, the spinning of the head was the was the other big one. And I felt like they accomplished that really well because they they kind of quick cut it, I felt like. You, you you saw her sitting there, you saw her turn around, but then it shifted to like a closer shot with just her, her real face, you know? Mm-hmm. So I feel like they accomplished that in a way that was natural enough uh, without lingering on the fact that it was a dummy. Right. You know, with a fake head. I thought that um, I read that they took out the iconic spider walk scene because of the fact that you could see the wires hanging down from the ceiling for the contortionist to walk down the stairs. So now that they have CGI'd it out, you can watch it on the extended version. But I think that that was probably a smart move that that would have frustrated some people because you would be able to see why 
the woman was able to do that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think you ha- you almost have to take those things out because they just don't work. Anything else from te- technical composition? The acting? What do you think about the acting? I agreed with you on the shrieking from the mother. I could have done a little <laughs> bit less with that. But I thought for, you know, what the movie was, I thought everybody did a really great job. I thought that the, the priest who wasn't an actual actor, who was an actual priest, was did a really good job. Oh, I thought he was fanta- fantastic. I didn't know he was a priest. Yeah, I would never have guessed he wasn't an actor. But yeah, I, I enjoyed the acting as well. I thought 99% of it was great. Naturalistic, authentic. Um, the mother's screaming was kind of the big thing. I mean, I didn't think Linda Blair did a particularly excellent job of Reagan when Reagan was Reagan. You know what I mean? But she's 12 years old. Right. What are you going to do? And she's in the movie so little as herself. Right. So if we've discussed the technical composition to the to the point you want, what uh, what would you rate this movie? I rated it a 6. Okay. And it was mostly because I felt frustrated with the plot um, over over anything else. I think if they had – if I hadn't done the research to figure out certain things, I, I would have not understood why there were the medals, like how the demon actually came from Iraq. It, it just wouldn't have tied it all in for me. So I came into this recording uh, with it as a nine. And the reason I put that is because I felt like the movie was so well shot. I felt like that the acting was so good aside from the mother screaming. But otherwise, I felt like it was really – I felt like it felt modern and it wasn't. And there's so many movies that you watch that are from the 70s and and, and before and even the 80s at this point probably that were considered good movies that you watch again and you're like, wow, this is just not good. Even the score in this movie was was good. A lot of movies from especially the 80s, I think, you watch and you're like, the music's horrible. It gets in the way of what's going on. It distracts you from what's going on in the movie. And in this movie, I felt like it was perfect. The only issue I really have from a technical point of view is the, um, is the plot. It, there's just some dangling participles if you will out there in in the plot and i actually feel better about the first 10 minutes now that we've discussed it it still doesn't completely gel but the the metal and the metal and releasing pazuzu and him being able to then go out in the world and get reagan i feel like that's that's stronger than what i actually thought it was so i'm gonna stick with my nine for the exorcist all right so next we have the impact score so how did the movie impact you so I can't get over the crucifix scene, so I gave it a nine. I was just wow. I'll tell you, I thought that that was shocking to me. I know I've seen it before, so to be shocked again, um, just the language that came out of that little girl's mouth, <laughs> making her <laughs> mother do horrible things. Um, <laughs> it's just, it definitely, that whole possession part made the movie. It was, it was an amazing, amazing possession. That's interesting. I. I actually rated this a five. Which, <laughs> so we have we're the, opposites. Yeah, we're like opposites in the movie. Yeah, I rated it a five only because I didn't find it that scary. I did find it shocking from, you know, from a cultural standpoint, if you will. But it still wasn't enough to really, to really replicate what I think the movie was was trying to be. What it was in seventy three, which was completely off the rails crazy when people watched it 
Um, so, yeah, I rated it a five. I, I guess if you were going with Scare Factor, I can see why you would rate it lower. But I thought that it did its job. Like, the intent might... I mean, maybe the intent in 1973 was to scare people. I don't know how many people would walk away feeling, hey, this could happen to me. Because that's, that's kind of where the scare factor kind of comes in. But I definitely thought just what what this girl did to herself and or, well, I guess it was really a demon did to the girl to do to herself was just beyond shocking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I had I had a difficult time rating this movie because... I struggled whether to take in its cultural significance into my scoring because it was such an icon of its time. I mean, it started the modern horror genre, really. I mean, coming out of the 60s with Hitchcock and, and those things, I mean, it really started that. It single-handedly, I think, created the possession subgenre of horror, which to this day runs strong, right? So I had a hard time on, on feeling like how I should rate it knowing that because you can't go back and watch it like somebody who in 73 sat down in the theater and watched it. I mean, you, we both grew up in on its descendants mm -hmm. that perfected each little nuance, like the, the subplot about the psychiatrist. We have that entire movies, which do that, right? We have the, the, the pure Catholic exorcism. We have movies that do that. So, you know, you just can't go back and watch it that way. Um, so I settled on just rating it on my ex viewing experience at, at this time. So that's, I, that's where I landed with a five. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and finally, did you enjoy it? I did enjoy it overall, despite the scenes that I absolutely hated. <laughs> I did enjoy it, so I yeah. gave it a seven. Gave it a seven. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I have written here a number, and I'm not going to read that number because I feel like I don't know where I came up with that number when I when I wrote it down. Uh, so I'm actually going to say a six. I, I, I feel like I enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, not necessarily for the scare factor, like I said, but as a time capsule to the 70s, um, as a sort of a look at some of the more shocking aspects of, of so horror we don't see necessarily anymore. Like you said, the, the crucifixion scene and, and the vulgarity in such a way out of such a young person. So I'm going to rate it as a six. All right, so with Anne out today, I am going to uh, go through the scale. Uh, we rate the movies on a scale of 1 to 10. Uh, a 1 to 3 is like having green puke projectile vomited into your mouth. A 4 to 6 is a minor case of the bed shakes. Uh, 7 to 9 is like jumping from a window to break every bone in your body while falling down a near endless set of concrete stairs. And a 10 is like masturbating with a wooden crucifix. So, Helen, can you tell us what each of our individual scores was and then the overall score for The Exorcist? Ray, there's no surprise here, but you got another 6.66. Man, I don't know how I keep on doing that. And I got a 7.33. So what was The Exorcist overall? The Exorcist overall was a 7. So a 7 for The Exorcist does not put it at the top of the hill. We have... Annabelle above it at a 7.3. So I'm sure that does not make a lot of the hardcore horror fans very happy <laughs> since Exorcist is a beloved horror classic. But I think we struck a good balance between 
the outdatedness of the sort of scariness of the 70s and what currently still holds up today. So I'm, I'm happy with that score. I agree. If you've enjoyed this podcast, help us grow our audience. Rate and review us on iTunes, and please share with your friends and family on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media platforms. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Hilltop Horror Movie Reviews. I'm your host, Ray Richards, and on behalf of my co-host, I hope you'll join us next time when we review 1987's Evil Dead 2.